You're listening to Wonder Cupboard. What is science? Where does it come from? Is it a cupboard? Hello, you're listening to Wonder Cupboard. My name is Ian. My name is Elena. And uh, what are we going to be talking about this time? We are going to talk about vaccines. We're going to try to unpack what the controversy around vaccines is about. There are many different issues wrapped up in the debate between anti-vaxxers and whatever people who are sensible enough to vaccinate their children are. Vaxxers? Vaxxers. I don't know. It sounds a bit 80s glam, doesn't it? <laughs> it's a bit purple and shiny. I feel like uh, Vaxxers is probably definitely one, uh, it probably a cut street gang from West Side Story. Yes. <laughs> yes. The kind of um, someone who would like walk very slowly and... and Click their fingers as they move. Vaxxers. Vaxxers. We're the Vaxxers. <laughs> I picture them wearing a lot of neon and I don't know why. Oh, I can see that. Mm, yeah, yeah, I think it works. Um, so, yeah, so that's, I, I suppose that's us because our personal position is that vaccines are useful and please vaccinate your children. I just wanted to get that out of the way yeah. before all this because... Let's put the disclaimer at the top of the episode. We believe that vaccines are a very good thing and a reasonable way to deal with infectious diseases. That's right. And also, we already have the jackets. That, damn it, yeah, it's true. And you can't tell, obviously, because this is an audio podcast, but we are pretty fluoro right now. <laughs> and they can't be returned because they're custom, so... Yeah. That's yeah, just it's one of those. So, yeah, so... That doesn't mean that we think that anti-vaxxers are just a bunch of idiots. This is complicated because on one hand, you want to respect points of view that are different from your own. And in this podcast, we always try our best to make sure that everyone's perspective is respected and valued. And we try to fully understand it which is very hard in this case. But I think it's important to acknowledge the fact that just saying that a very, at this point, very large population are idiots doesn't really help anyone. Because if we want to engage meaningfully with people who don't vaccinate their children, we need to understand what their reasons are, where they're coming from, what we can do to mediate. So basically, we need to do what science and technology studies have been doing for 30 years. And that's something I'm very happy about because that's what I do. You're very much on team science and technology studies. Yeah, that's my department. That's your department. <laughs> and I love them all. Hi. Hi, everyone. I'm, I'm waving, but I don't, think, I don't think you can see that. Your wave, much like our jackets, will remain... In the realm of imagination. <laughs> Does it show that we haven't been recording for a while? We've just forgotten <laughs> how audio works. <laughs> uh, so do you have any memories of getting vaccines at school? Like, weirdly enough, I don't. Like, I know I've been vaccinated, but I have just well, no idea. Maybe that'll just be the brainwashing. That'll be the brainwashing. <laughs> <laughs> do you? Uh, uh, yes, I do. I do. Well, I, I remember the sort of... I remember the school rumour mill going into full alert when the vaccines were coming up 
and you start to hear all these stories about a child in another school whose arms swelled up to be twice the size of his body <laughs> and all this kind of stuff. And,、uh, and someone had the vaccine and、uh, they couldn't be in school for a week and they were, it was so painful. And I definitely remember one rumor which was、um, that you could be expelled if you punched someone in the arm after they'd had a vaccine, <laughs> which is unlikely. I think. I mean, you'd be told off.、Yeah. But it, it all contributed to this kind of thing of the vaccine, the vaccine. It was, and I can't remember exactly which one it was now.、Um, It's very more than one. Yeah. But yes, oh, there, were, there was definitely more than one. But there was one in particular. It was like, whoa, whoa. I know. I, I remember someone saying that the ne- needle was so big, <laughs> it went in your arm in one end and came out the other. <laughs> And I remember thinking, <laughs> that doesn't sound right. Yeah. Because if it came out the other, it wouldn't be able to inject anything into you. <laughs> oh, you're such a clever little boy. So weren't smart. You? So smart.、Um, the other thing I remember was a particularly bad decision by my school for one of the, for one of the jabs.、Um, was that the queue to go in and have the injection. Went past the room that they were using for people who didn't feel very well after having had it.、Oh, no. So, as you queued, you looked into this room and saw these kids going, <laughs> one of them lying on a little camp bed because they'd felt faint. Or this、oh. sort of, I don't think anyone actually had a, a, a bad reaction, but I think it, it was quite stressful. Yeah. And a few people probably hyperventilated a bit, to be honest.、Mm-hmm. Um, Allergic reactions are very, very, very rare. They、yeah. do happen, and obviously that's why they're prepared for them. But yeah, we were all walking past this room full of sick children, going, not full, there was like three. <laughs> uh, uh, and it didn't really help. No. It didn't really help、no. me feel calm. And it was fine. Yeah. I felt a little bit coldy for a, for a, for a, for a day. Oh. Yeah.、And、look at me now, fit as a fiddle. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that was, thank you for sharing. A little,、uh, a little step back in time to the olden days of the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> um, the good old days when measles wasn't trying to kill us all,、mm. which it is now.、Mm. So that was quite a good segue, right, into the data section.、Mm. Um, Britney Spears never had to write a song about measles. But, but, but she would she do would, now. Now she would. How,、yeah. how would that go?、Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm not a nut. Do, 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 do. Not a full bacterium. <laughs> no, it's not. It's, that's, It wouldn't have taken off. No. I had some, something along the lines of Oops, I did it again. I punched you in the arm <laughs> and then got expelled. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think.、Uh, that's, that's, that's good, ca- right? That's catchy. That's topical,、mm. I think. So, yeah, so let's look at the data for measles, shall we? So, they are spreading worldwide with three times as many cases as last year, which is quite scary to look at. The upward trend started in 2016 and concerns both countries where vaccinations are historically hard to come by. And countries where some people have decided to forgo vaccination for their children. So we can't ignore the fact that it's a problem. Also, 
I think we should remind ourselves why measles are bad. Because sometimes people talk about it very lightly as if just, you know, you're just in bed for a week. It's going to be fine. Mm. And then you're immune for the rest of your life. You know, all in all, everyone's happy. Right. So first of all, it's not just that you're in bed for a week. It's like a really bad cold, okay, with high fever, sore eyes. Some people are also sensitive to light, so it's quite painful. And you get this upper body rash that is also not pleasant. But the worst part are the complications. They can be extremely dangerous. So you can get pneumonia, which is an infection of the lungs. You can get encephalitis, which is an infection of the brain, and that can cause death, blindness, other permanent impairments. The incidence of the complications increases massively for adults. So if you haven't contracted disease as a child or you haven't been vaccinated and then you become infected as an adult, you have around 50% chance to get complications. That's insane. Plus, if your body's weakened for whatever reason, so if you don't eat enough or um, you are already ill, obviously the risks of death or permanent impairment are much higher. The last global data we have are from 2017, when around 110,000 people died due to measles alone. Measles also causes something called immune amnesia. This was actually just confirmed. It was something that was suspected, but an article just came out to confirm this. This means that basically contracting measles wipes your body's memory of previous infections. So any resistance you might have built up to other diseases is just annihilated. And this amnesia can last for up to two years, it seems. And it's extremely dangerous as well, because then you could just die of something else. So yeah, it's pretty bad. Mm. It's serious stuff. It is serious. It's not just a teething. It's not like teething. Mm. It's not like chickenpox. Yeah. It's very bad. And chickenpox was already not the funnest of all. So, as most people know, vaccinating children against infectious diseases is important because it leads to herd immunity. That is, most of the population is vaccinated. That makes it much harder for the virus to spread. Herd immunity is important because not everyone can be vaccinated, sometimes for health reasons, sometimes for issues that have to do with access to the vaccine. So if everyone who can be vaccinated is, that protects those exceptions too. If the vaccination rate falls under a certain threshold, which for measles is between 92 and 95%, so that's really high, herd immunity is lost and measles feast. So this is something that most people will know, or at least most people amongst our very well-informed listeners. So we're going to talk about something you might not know, and that is how vaccines came about. It's going to be a very short history because there's just so much to go through. So the first account of vaccination we have comes from China. According to some scholars, Chinese people were inoculating themselves with smallpox as a preventative measure as early as 200 BC. Smallpox, now eradicated, used to leave myriads of thick scabs on the skin of the people affected. 
In China, they would pick out those scabs, grind them to a fine powder, and either rub the powder into the skin of healthy people or essentially snort it. So that was their version of a smallpox party. That sounds like great fun. <laughs> I've got some new stuff. Got a few. Just, just picked. <laughs> a few nibbles out, uh, cheese cubes, olives, scabs. <laughs> I wonder what was their equivalent of the credit card um, sweeping the grounds scabs into a line. <laughs> yeah, that's that's how I'm picturing it, but um, that's probably not what happened. Probably not. Just because there were no credit cards. Just but yeah, that's the only reason. Um, so this practice lasted for a very long time and it was still existing in the 1500s in China and India, much earlier than any similar practice developed in the West. In fact, imposing vaccination on younger generations also appears to have started here. In 1661, Emperor Kang, who had survived smallpox as a child, wrote a letter to his descendants prescribing inoculation for all of them and for the community. So this is an extract from the letter. The method of inoculation, having been brought to light during my reign, not exactly true, but fine, um, I had it used upon you, my sons and daughters and my descendants, and you all passed through the smallpox in the happiest possible manner. In the beginning, when I had it tested on one or two people, some old women texted me with extravagance and spoke very strongly against inoculation. The courage which I summoned up to insist on its practice has saved the lives and health of millions of men. This is an extremely important thing of which I am very proud. It's very much the LinkedIn post of its time. <laughs> uh, really proud uh, of this work that I've done uh, on my own. Please hire me. <laughs> hashtag inspo. Yeah. Has, hashtag inspiration. Here's a little story. Uh, an inspirational story of which I happen to be entirely instrumental and I'm the hero of it. <laughs> Click more. In these letters, you can also find a few themes that we'll see recurring again and again. There's a position and some condescension against those who oppose. You know, of course, there were the old women, you Ugh. know, saying, oh, you're a bit strange, aren't you? Um, well, the men were all very wise and accepting. Experimentation on murkily defined subjects. So like, I've tried it on a couple of people. Who were these people? How did that come about? We don't know. And we'll see a few more examples of that, which actually escalates. As in, in the history of vaccines, there's a lot of exploitation of people who were powerless or in a position of less power. <laughs> There's also inoculation as a policy that was imposed on communities. So that's quite, there's quite a lot packed into that letter, isn't it? Um, at the same time, similar practices existed in Africa and in Turkey. And that is long before Edward Jenner published a paper that sanctioned him as the, in many quotes, inventor of vaccines, which appeared in 1798. And even then, he was drawing on folk knowledge it was well known in the English countryside that milkmaids who had contracted cowpox became immune to smallpox. And cowpox was a milder version of it that uh, cows were affected by. 
He tested his theory by extracting pus from a cow's infected pustule and injecting it into the arm of an eight-year-old boy who was the son of a local land worker, James Phipps. James developed a fever that was well afterwards and in fact immune to smallpox. Before he could publish, the Royal Society asked Jenner for more evidence, so he just went around testing on even more children from probably disadvantaged backgrounds. Yay, well done. So he finally got published, as we said, in 1798. So basically, he stole an idea from countryside workers, tested on their children, and got credit for it. Great work! (laughs) That's another LinkedIn story for you. Yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. So yeah, so despite his personal shortcomings, we have to recognize that his work paid off. The use of the smallpox vaccine became eventually so common that the disease was declared eradicated in 1980. After Jenner, Louis Pasteur developed a vaccine for rabies. Uh, The patron saint of milk. Yes. Yeah. That was in 1885. There followed an avalanche of vaccines as the mechanism began to be better understood thanks to advances in microbiology. By the 1930s, we had vaccines for cholera, tetanus, plague, tuberculosis, anthrax, and many more. Between the 50s and 60s, a vaccine for poliomyelitis, I struggle with that word, was developed, prompting the first major worldwide effort to eradicate a disease. Polio, as we like to call it because it's a hard word, is a devastating, highly infectious disease that can cause muscle atrophy, deformity, paralysis and death. Polio is close to being eradicated at the moment, even though a few cases are still unfortunately reported every now and again. There is no cure for it, so the vaccine played a major role in saving, at this point, who knows how many lives. Actually, in in October 2019, so like last week, it was declared that one strain of the poliovirus, WPV3, has been officially eradicated. WPV2 was declared to be eradicated in 2015, and WPV1 is the one that is still around, currently only in Afghanistan and Pakistan. So as vaccines spread so did efforts to vaccinate entire populations, as well as opposition to inoculation campaigns. And we'll see how those two things are strongly linked. In the US, pushback to vaccines started to happen as soon as they were made mandatory in a few states. The smallpox vaccine arrived in New England in 1800, so just two years after Jenner published Thomas Jefferson was very enthusiastic about it and mandatory vaccine laws started popping up in various states. And you know, what could go wrong? Americans love it when the government tells them what to do. And on top of that, medicine at the time was not exactly at its finest. You were better off staying away from doctors, if you could possibly help it. Plus, drugs were not regulated, including vaccines. So I can see how if you were feeling generally all right and you were a middle-class European settler living in decent conditions, it would seem rather counterintuitive to go and be inoculated with something, hoping for the best. Mm. The mistrust for vaccines stuck around even when medicine had gradually become less terrifying. Vaccination was seen as a breach of personal freedom. 
Frederick Douglass, one of the leaders of the abolitionist movement and a former slave himself, publicly defended this view. Even some doctors oppose vaccination. One doctor, Emmanuel Pfeiffer, convinced that healthy people couldn't get smallpox, took himself on a mini-break to a Boston hospital where some infected people were quarantined. You see, this is, you've really got to look carefully at the photos on your Airbnb listing. <laughs> Otherwise, you, this kind of stuff can happen. Oh, yeah, go to Boston, it's cheap. All of a sudden, you're in a hospital with a whole bunch of quarantined people. Oh, yeah. I'm it not, was cheap. Yeah. But... I'm going to take the entire house filter. I don't need that. I'm happy to share. <laughs> So yeah, so what do you think happened when he was flat sharing with um, quarantined people? Uh, <laughs> I suspect he, he got smallpox. He got smallpox, yeah. Yeah, mm. yeah, he got smallpox and almost died. Right. Um, and then what do you think he did after this traumatic experience? Of course, he carried on opposing vaccines. Because, <laughs> I don't know, he had principles or something. This is when the anti-vaccine movement appears to become really unhinged. Anti-vaccination societies start appearing all over the US until the Supreme Court, ruling on one of the many cases of outward opposition to vaccination, affirmed that states could make vaccines mandatory. That cooled the activists for a while until the anti-vax sentiment was reawakened by a documentary Ed in 1982 called DPT, The Vaccine Roulette. It's a pretty good title. You've got to hand it to them. That's strong, isn't it? Yeah. I'm picturing lots of like slow motion B-roll of casinos <laughs> intercutting film sections. And, and the ball is like a hospital. And then instead of the numbers, <laughs> you've got different depictions of viruses. Yeah. Is definitely, that, yeah. yeah. Ooh, yeah. and maybe the croupier could be wearing a lab coat. Yes, definitely. And the line, and also the line, and would you swap croup for a croupier? Oh, that's good, right? Strong. <sighs> that is super strong. Well, I'm gonna go back in time and do no. I, I'm just not gonna just, get involved. It probably get confusing. Yeah, don't do that. Mm. Um. <laughs> so, so, so this documentary was basically just focusing on potential health risks related to vaccines. There was no mention of the fact that it might be useful for something. Mm. And then the now infamous paper linking vaccines and autism was published. I'm sure a lot of people know about this, um, but let's just go a bit deeper into it. So this idea that there would be a link between vaccines and autism was not a new idea. It was actually also correlated to other other chronic illnesses as well. It's just that autism obviously caught the imagination a bit more. So it wasn't a new idea as such, but Andrew Wakefield and his team were the first ones to do a systematic investigation of case studies. In 1998, they published a study on The Lancet saying that MMR, so that's measles, mumps and rubella, the, the vaccine for MMR, correlated with autism. There were no claims of causation as such in the paper, but Wakefield went on to say in an interview that the combined vaccine put children at a higher risk to develop autism. So it wasn't all in the media. He actually genuinely said that. 
His proposed solution to this problem was to administer single antigen vaccines, that is, to separate the three diseases in different inoculations. And he would have known, given that he had just a year before filed a patent for a single antigen measles vaccine. Mm. So that was, that, was the, that was a lucky coincidence, isn't it? Mm. I know just the vaccine you could use if such a strategy were pursued. Yeah. So the paper was criticised. It was retracted by 10 out of 12 authors. The hypothesis of the link between vaccines and autism was probed again and again by researchers, but to no avail. There just doesn't seem to be a link. But regardless of this, vaccination rates plummeted. Uh, The Lancet took another 12 years to formally retract the paper. Uh, So they did it in 2010. When Wakefield was also banned from practicing medicine in Britain. I was I was researching him and I was wondering what he was up to now, you know, hoping he'd retreated to the countryside to develop his own variety of Brussels sprouts or something. But unfortunately, he is still active. Uh, he's in the States. He's supporting anti-vaxxers. Um, he submitted a documentary to Tribeca Film Festival, uh, which they politely declined to show. <laughs> and he is dating Elle McPherson. Elle? You mean, What? L, the body, McPherson? Yeah. Wow. Also, she's still hot. She's 50 now. That's true, but there's nothing hot about people who are anti-vaccination propagandists. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for that. You're welcome. Strong. (laughs) (laughs) I think she's also tried to weakly defend him at some point, but it sounds like like it's one of those things in a couple that you come to see as a weird quirk (laughs) you know like oh he doesn't put down the toilet seat oh he's caused lots of deaths indirectly because of bollock science (laughs) you know yeah wonder cupboard so studies have been made trying to unpick the exact reasons why people are resistant to vaccines Is it fear? Is it an affirmation of independence from institutions such as science and the state? The answer appears to be yes and more. A study conducted in Israel has established that highly educated people tend to be more hesitant about vaccinating their kids. Um, This seems to be quite common in the West. Vaccines also appear to be framed as something that one does for others, not for oneself. That seems to be the case with polio as well as with the HPV vaccine for males. So the question becomes, why should I put myself or my kids at risk when I or my kids are not likely to receive a benefit? You can see this reasoning in American and European anti-vaxxers as well, even turning herd immunity into an argument for not vaccinating. If most people vaccinate their children, the reasoning goes, my child will be protected by herd immunity anyway. Let them risk their kids' health. I am cosy and peachy. Except if enough people, and it doesn't take many, reason this way, of course, herd immunity is compromised. Strong feelings of autonomy and self-determination have been linked with vaccine resistance as well. There appears to be a link between populist politics and anti-vax, which is probably unsurprising to most, but it's good to have evidence for this, right? It all seems to come down to a lack of trust in authority. Also, there's this idea that you are the best place person to take care of your own children. 
And so people end up doing things like measles parties, where children mingle with infected kids in the hopes of developing immunity. One thing I discovered while preparing this episode is that sometimes people do this long distance as well. So parents of ill children post swabs from their own kids to other parents who then infect their own children. And it's just, how does this even happen? Like, think of the consequences. Like, it's not like the swab is teleported to the other kid. There's a postal system in between. People get in touch with it. You're basically just releasing a virus in the wild. And that's, I'm sorry, but that's just stupid. So basically, it appears to be about self-interest as well as lack of trust in authority. And that is in the West. So I might be surprised to learn that we don't have the exclusive on resistance to vaccines. Since so much of this phenomenon is based essentially on power, who decides what to do with people's bodies, it shouldn't surprise anyone that colonial relationships between nations have an important bearing on it, where colonial power is felt. India is an interesting case. As we said before, variolation, uh, which is using smallpox scabs in order to immunize people from it, has been practiced in some parts of India for centuries. Then the Brits arrived and went, so we have this wondrous medicine, really. It is called vaccine. To which people were like, no shit, we've got something that does the same fucking thing, but it wasn't given to us by the same people who killed and subjugated us. So, And then there were other factors as well. Bengal appears to be the most resistant part of the country during British rule. In 1770, so that's before vaccination was developed by Jenner, there had been a massive epidemic of smallpox in Bengal. It was believed that the epidemic had been made worse by the famine that had been sweeping the region at the time. The famine itself had been caused by the British monopoly on rice. They swept up the rice and sold it back to India at such a high price that most people were not able to afford eating properly. And that's not great for your immune system. 10 million people died because of that epidemic. Bengalis were not impressed with the Western doctor-patient relationship either. While local doctors that administered variolation also gave patients advice on how to take care of themselves after the inoculation, British doctors were just providing injections. In Bengal, Brahmins were the ones to administer violation, thereby adding a religious and cultural side to the care of the patient. According to some accounts, Brahmins had a financial interest in being the ones to perform inoculations and so would pit Indians against the Brits. In other regions, British campaigns were more successful, uh, especially in those cases where an indigenous tradition of violation didn't exist. In fact, in Madras, for instance, 145,000 people were vaccinated between 1802 and 1804. That's an amazing feat. Part of the success might have been because inoculators here were paid much more than their counterparts in Bengal. In the French Empire in Africa, which covered a large area of the western part of Africa, resistance developed after World War II, when France got back in touch with its colonies. People in rural areas claimed that being forced to receive vaccination violated their rights as citizens of the French Union. Interestingly, this corresponds with a time when African people started to be allowed to become doctors themselves. There had been Western medical schools in Africa since 1896, but they just weren't for Africans. They were for Europeans, 
coming around to keep the area suitable for settlement. Building medical infrastructure also helped justifying colonization in the first place. The usual story of, sure, we have deprived you of your freedom and lives, but you have to admit that's a heck of a bridge we've built here. Um, I should have said that in a French accent, but I didn't because I am not a xenophobic (laughs) racist. (laughs) If Africa had to be safe for Europeans, they had to make sure no pesky infectious diseases were around. Starting in 1904, smallpox vaccinations were administered by the French, the Brits and the Belgians. Thousands, if not millions of people were vaccinated. Labs in Africa would work with European collaborators in order to develop vaccines. Um, in fact, there were branches of the Pasteur Institute, also, again, our um, patron saint of milk, yes. had a church in Africa as well, mm-hmm. actually in sub-Saharan Africa. More recently, there have been issues surrounding the testing of HIV vaccine in Africa. In the early 2000s, efforts started being made to develop an HIV vaccine. One of the areas targeted with trials was South Africa. There were a few issues with consent. Firstly, there was a worry that people would consent to participate to trials because they thought they would get better medical care. Well, obviously, in order to preserve scientific rigor, that wasn't the case. Secondly, lack of involvement and information of local communities led to widespread mistrust towards the researchers. One story that is considered a success relates to a community in Labiza, apologies if that's mispronounced, where researchers and local leaders literally went door to door to talk to people about the trial. A village meeting was called. A buffalo donated by the regional conservation services was eaten. And more than a thousand people ate lunch together discussing the trial and meeting people who were working on the initiative. The project was carried out without any protests. When the Ebola outbreak started in 2015, similar conflicts emerged surrounding the development of the vaccine as well. It feels like pharmaceutical companies don't want to be liked, and, you know, why would they? In the case of the HPV vaccine trial in India, they are begging to be cast as supervillains. The trial took place in 2009 in Andhra Pradesh, And the exploitation of the patients was appalling. The patients were 10 to 14-year-old girls, which is not unusual for a vaccine. However, these girls were members of vulnerable communities in the area, such as Muslims, or part of groups known as scheduled castes and scheduled tribes in the Indian constitution. The definition of these groups is somewhat circular. They are defined by their own being marginalized. In the case of castes, The term scheduled castes refers to those who are also known as untouchables or Dalit, so those at the very bottom of the traditional caste system. Not only that, but the parents of the girls involved in the trial were not directly contacted. Some of these girls lived in boarding schools far away from home, so authorization from the parents couldn't be sought. Others were supposed to bring approval forms to their parents for signing, but the parents were never in touch with the researchers. Communication was mostly led in English. Only a fraction of it was in um, Telugu, which is the, the local language. The project was run by international NGOs and pharmaceutical companies with institutional support from Indian authorities. But the perception among patients was that it was a government program to immunize girls to 
HPV. People thought they were taken care of, which was all the more enticing given that healthcare in those areas is basically non-existent. The experimental uncertainty just didn't factor into the picture. In fact, when people did get sick after being administered the vaccine, those cases were not investigated. Six deaths were also reported, but were attributed to other causes such as suicide or snake bites. It's unclear what actually happened. So clearly the trial was not run with a view to improve the patient's lives. One of the vaccines administered, called Gardasil, had been fast-tracked to approval in the US. This is a procedure normally reserved to life-saving drugs, like HIV or cancer drugs. Absolutely inappropriate in this case. There's also the fact that if the vaccine was proven to be effective and safe, it would be unaffordable for people in those communities and it wouldn't be a full solution. In fact, only two strains of the HPV virus were targeted, which means that alternative ways of preventing deaths from cervical cancer, which can develop after an HPV infection, were still needed. That is, you know, pap smears. Um, The coverage of cervical screening in India averages around 3%, which is incredibly low, and that's because of a lack of infrastructure. Investing in that infrastructure as opposed to the vaccine seems to be a much more reasonable way to tackle this particular public health issue. Instead, I got a dodgily approved drug to be tested on a vulnerable population who couldn't possibly benefit from the result. Of course, the market for the vaccine was elsewhere. No one, apart from pharmaceutical companies, appears to have benefited from this. Testing on vulnerable populations has basically been medicine's number one trick for a long time. Things have definitely improved over time, but it still happens. Perhaps we should talk about the evolution of medical ethics at some point. But anyway, in the case of vaccines, this has been happening since the beginning. We've seen what happened to James Phipps, but that's not everything. Convicted criminals were used for taxing smallpox vaccine in Britain, as well as slaves in the colonies. Even more insulting, it was remarked at the time that vaccines tested on slave women might not be suitable for the delicate constitution of European women that might be corrupted by these substances that they couldn't withstand. Oh, the poor ladies. I'm too delicate. (laughs) Oh, yeah, there's like, there's so much awfulness entangled in this. Like, that's racist. Yeah, and that sounds like a scientific racism situation. Absolutely. I mean, racism, but also scientific racism. Absolutely. And that's another thing we need to talk about at some point. And I think that's, that's in a pipeline. It's just, it's just awful, however way you cut it. Finally, while Western doctors have been more than happy to experiment on the colonized, the same enthusiasm hasn't always applied to granting access to these vaccines. At the moment, the coverage is pretty good, hovering around 80%, 90% for most vaccines, but there are still millions of children who go without. The countries with most issues are Angola, Brazil, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Ethiopia, India, Indonesia, Nigeria, Pakistan, the Philippines, and Vietnam. So make of that what you will. So wrapping up, in any case, opposition to vaccines 
is about one's own best interest or self-determination or relationship with institutions, but articulated differently depending on power relations. Well, in the privileged pockets in the West, it's about choosing whether or not to vaccinate. In least privileged areas, the ethical problem is about access and sometimes even about victimization. Self-determination means something very different in these different contexts. Okay, so this was all very bleak. So let, let's try and think about solutions that have been proposed just to see whether there is hope. Solution number one, harm reduction. I read a paper in which someone suggested that you could establish guidelines for an ethical pox party. <laughs> <laughs> It's one of those situations where putting ethical on the front of it makes it sound even worse. Like you might as well put artisanal on the front uh, <laughs> and it will be only slightly more irritating. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, there are rules. That's what makes it ethical, mm. you know. So the rules okay. are, one, the disease is sufficiently <laughs> low risk. So I suppose that makes it like an ethical, like cold party mm. like you can sneeze on each other like because yeah. none of this is actually that low risk mm. but anyway rule two is you do not talk about disease club <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so rule two is that parents consent to their child's attendance well thank you and three that children exposed to infection are quarantined and isolated appropriately so the idea is that this would be better than not vaccinating children. Uh, not that this would be better than actually vaccinating children, so just to be yeah. um, clear. Which is, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, it's basically the vaccination version of methadone for drug addicts, which says a lot. I mean, I'm not a doctor. I honestly don't know whether this makes sense from a medical point of view. But I seriously doubt people in an anti-vax frame of mind would be disciplined enough to stick to a quarantine regimen, which is quite difficult to achieve in non-hospital settings anyway. You need one of those big bubbles they put over the house in ET. Yeah. That's, that's the ideal way. Or maybe one of those bubbles that you can... Uh, that you see at the seaside sometimes that you can like get in the <laughs> bubble and then they inflate it and then you like walk on water that's good yeah 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 like a zorb yeah absorbing thing That'd i mean that good. sounds fun yeah so solution number two compulsory vaccines some argue that vaccination should be compulsory and of it is in some places different countries impose different sanctions on those who don't vaccinate their children so that depends on their historically developed concepts of individual's autonomy and granted freedoms. So some don't refer directly to the vaccination requirement. Uh, so that happens in Western Europe. Some associate being vaccinated with educational possibilities. So the US, since June 2015, there are, there are restrictions that have to do with being able to send your kids to school if they don't have certain vaccinations. Others limit your access to public health infrastructure, like in Australia since 2016. In other places, there are financial penalties for those who don't vaccinate their children. For instance, in Poland, where, by the way, the coverage was absolutely fine under the Soviet Union. Now it's not anymore. I'm not endorsing the Soviet Union. 
but that's the case. In other cases, you can even go to jail if you don't vaccinate your children. Like in Pakistan, parents have actually been arrested for not vaccinating their children against polio. Solution number three, communication. Just like other kinds of populist propaganda, social media is the main means through which anti-vax sentiment spreads. There have been attempts to stop this. Pinterest channels traffic looking for anti-vax content towards a landing page populated with facts pulled from trustworthy agencies, such as the American Academy of Pediatrics and the World Health Organization. Apparently because, and I quote from a Pinterest representative, people come to a platform to find inspiration and there's nothing inspiring about harmful content. Thanks for coming to my TED Talk. (laughs) Twitter. If you search for vaccine-related tweets on Twitter, you are redirected to a post from the US Department of Health and Human Services. Facebook noticeably absent from that. Yeah. From that list. And in the last few days while we've recorded this, so this is November 2019, it's been revealed that most of the anti-vaccine-related advertising on Facebook comes from just two sources, and they're spending millions on it. Whereas the pro-vaccination content is actually coming from quite a wide range of institutions, Mm. but they've only got so much money. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Mm. Solution number four. Democracy. That's quite a wide one, but it's just like, it seems quite obvious, but we should grant access to vaccines to people who need it. And people should not be experimented on without their consent. Like, this shouldn't be controversial, but it is. Mm. So yeah, I think we can do better than that, humans. Five. Solution number five. Questioning. So this is my opinion. I think questioning science in itself is not a bad thing. People will write to question vaccine trial practices in India, for instance. Scientists are wrong about things sometimes. Wakefield was a scientist. He published in The Lancet, which is a very reputable, well-established medical journal. Science, as we try to hammer home every episode, is a human endeavor and should be seen as such. Questioning is fine as long as we are reasonable. That is, if all the evidence points in a given direction, we should take it into account. If the best available evidence tells us that measles are bad and there is a relatively painless way of getting rid of them and it doesn't cause autism because for fuck's sake it doesn't, then let's take it. And that was us, unsurprisingly, not solving the vaccine crisis. Shall we do the references? Sure. And now, the references. Okay, so this time it's particularly different, difficult because I was obsessed with getting this right because vaccines is such an important topic. You can't let anything slide. So I have actually a shitload of sources. <laughs> a um, metric shitload or an imperial shitload? Always metric. <laughs> little, little test for you there. <laughs> So, so yeah, I'm not going to read them all now because unless you need to go to sleep or something. I'll put everything on the website, or actually Ian is going to. I'm going to tell him what to put there. Um, <laughs> but, 
<laughs> but I'll give you a few pointers for like major resources. So for a great history of vaccines, get yourself to, guess what it's called? Historyofvaccines.org. <laughs> Historyofvaccines.org for all your history of vaccines needs. <laughs> it sounds like a fake website, doesn't it? Like does it you make up in conversation? But no, it's real. Um, and it's run by the College of Physicians of Philadelphia. They have an interactive timeline and everything. It's really good. Um, so you can also like play around. You can select what you're most interested in. Am I the only one who has fun with this kind of thing? <laughs> it does sound good, actually. <laughs> um, that's basically my Friday night. If you're interested in the ethics of vaccine, I can recommend a book. And I guess what it's called? The Ethics of Vaccines? Yes! Hey! It's by someone called Alberto Giubilini, who is also Italian. He's a philosopher who works in medical ethics at Oxford University. And some of the framing for the ethical issues in this um, episode comes from there. If you want data that is up to date and as reliable as can be, the World Health Organization website has an extensive section on vaccines. So get yourself over there before Christmas so you can argue with your anti-vax aunt <laughs> at the dinner table after she's had sherry or whatever she drinks but also for yourself, just to remind yourself of vaccination. Bring uh, bring printouts. Yeah. Put them into a, into crackers so they can open a cracker and there's just a bunch of delightful data there. It's, oh, it could be like, like a little vaccination fact. Yeah, exactly. Instead of the bad joke. Yeah. Or, you know, you could craft little fake vaccination kits as, um, as gifts for your friends and family. Mm. With something rolled up inside and like, I don't know, syringe-shaped candy. <laughs> so, um, I, yeah, well, we'll, we'll, we'll think about that. <laughs> oh, I, I, I had them ready for... Uh, okay, well, we'll talk about that later. It's fine. I can, I can always get like chocolate or something. Cool. So shall we say goodbye then? I, uh, well, yes. But first, what have we learned today? We've learned today that if you want to effectively prevent the spread of diseases, you need to make sure that your vaccine needle does not go in one end of your arm and stick out of the other. <laughs> Wonder Cupboard. Hey, Eleanor, where can I get extensive information on vaccines? Who? Well, that's what I'm asking you. Oh, it's a classic. It's a classic joke. It's, it's a classic joke. Does this go in your Christmas cracker as well? Yes, it is. Yeah. Sorry. 